good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Fresh Rosen Southerner podcast. My name is Jay. I hope all is well, and I hope everyone's week is off to a nice start. I had a very interesting start to my week. On Sunday morning, I was awakened to my wife telling me that I needed to get outside, the police were next door, and that they were trying to get the neighbor out of his house. Now, the names have been changed to protect the innocent, but the house to the left of us is owned by a woman in her, I believe, mid-40s. Uh, if on the off chance she hears this and I'm way off, I don't mean any disrespect. I simply I don't really know how old this woman is. Uh, but she's about my age, and her cousin lives with her. Now, her cousin was actually raised by her parents. Apparently, his parents got involved in drugs and alcohol and were unable to take care of him. So at some point, he came to live with them. I don't know how old he is. But I'd spoken to this guy a lot over the last seven years. Um, You could tell that he was off. Now, he's not unfriendly. He's just a little socially awkward. And on occasion, he'd be out working in their driveway or in the backyard, and you would hear him ranting about something. But like I say, he never seemed like overtly off his nut. He had never caused any problems. Like I say, he'd always, if you see him out in the yard, he'd always wave and say hello. But apparently on Sunday morning, he had a little bit of a mental break. Uh, Now, when I walked out onto the porch, there were several police cars. Uh, There was a state trooper, and there was a police car from each of the little townships in our area. There was also a fire truck and an ambulance. Um, I found out why they were there. Well, of course, the ambulance was there for him. For the sake of the story, we'll call him John. Uh, But his cousin's name is Susan. Again, not her real name. But I found out later why the fire department was there as well. Uh, But as I sat on the porch, now I couldn't see anything. There is a hedge in between our two properties. It's about six foot tall. And their house sits back further from the road than our house does. So when I'm sitting on the front porch, I cannot see any part of their house. I could hear a police officer standing in their yard. He was speaking very loudly because he was down near the road and John was inside the house, but he was trying to talk John into coming outside of the house. Uh, John was yelling stuff. I couldn't understand everything he was saying, but one thing I could hear was that he kept saying, you'll see in the video, you'll see in the video. This went on for about a half hour. Through that time, a couple of other police cruisers pulled up. Uh, One of the ones that pulled up, pulled up in the road in front of our house. They had blocked off the road. Now, the road we live on is the main road from Interstate 80 into the town we live in. But after I sat there for about 10 minutes, I noticed there's no cars coming by. They have the road shut down. But one of the cruisers that came up pulled up right in front of our house, and the officer got out of his car, and he went around to the passenger side. And he stood there for a few minutes, and I didn't understand what exactly he was doing. But when he come back around the car, he had a very heavy bulletproof jacket on, a ballistic helmet, and a M4 rifle. And also, while all this was going on, and of course, this whole time, he's yelling out of the house. The officer out in the driveway has been talking to him this whole time. Three different occasions, I heard the very distinct sound of an M4 rifle being cocked. So these guys were planning on going in like a SWAT team at some point. Now, at one point, they asked the lady that lived next door, Susan, to to come over to our 
driveway, so she would not be directly in front of the house if anything happened. Now, according to Susan, there are no guns in the house, but this individual did have, John did have a knife that he had threatened to cut himself with if the police came into the house. But once she came over, we went back inside the house and, and we got her something to drink. And of course, she's just a, a heap of tears on our couch because this has been a horrible morning for her. But she gave us the whole story of what had happened. Now, apparently, John had always had some mental issues, nothing major. And again, he's never been violent. He's never hurt anyone or himself. Uh, but he had, even as a child, he was going to therapy. Uh, now, once he got to 18, he doesn't want to go talk to any therapist. He doesn't take any of the medication they want him to be on. And unfortunately, mental illness is a progressive disease. It will get worse and worse without treatment, which obviously John is not receiving. Because like I said, ever since I've lived in this house, he's held down a job. Like I say, he's friendly. If you see him in the backyard, he'd always wave and say hello. We'd pass a few words. I've never had long conversations with him, but I've spoken to this guy several times. But Susan told us that that morning he had, over the last couple of weeks, he had just gotten progressively more paranoid. Uh, the video that I heard him yelling about, he believes that someone has bugged the house. He thinks that there are microphones and speakers inside the walls of the house. Apparently, he believes that I am an undercover cop, which does not make me feel super comfortable about living here anymore. But it all came to a head that morning. Uh, apparently, Susan noticed him in the front yard pouring gasoline around the front yard when she went out and asked him what he was doing, he started pouring gasoline on himself, and he said that he was going to burn the house down. Well, Susan grabbed the gas can from him and ran it around the side of the house. John then went and got a propane cylinder for a gas grill, the little 20-pound propane cylinders, and a pickaxe, and said that he was going to puncture the propane cylinder and blow, blow them both up. Well, she got the propane cylinder away from him. And apparently she had said that she had called the police at that point and she was waiting for the police to arrive. But that's when he went back into the house and he would not come out when the police came. Now, fortunately, I don't know if they talked him out or if they went into the house and he came out with them. I did not hear any commotion. Again, at this point, me and my wife and Susan were inside our living room and she was calling family members of hers in the area to let them know what was going on. But... Long story short, uh, John was taken into police custody, uh, was taken away to the hospital. I'm sure they're going to keep him for, you, know, you always hear about a, a 52-50, 48-hour hold at a mental institution. There are longer periods that you can be taken in. It's not just, you know, the movies make it seem like that's all that you're ever going to be held for as long as you didn't actually hurt anybody. But no, you can be ordered to stay four days, two weeks, you know, whatever the judge feels is appropriate. So hopefully John is getting some help and they can pull him back from the ledge, metaphorically speaking. Uh, the problem is, is that there's just really not a lot of mental health help in this country. Now, obviously, there are plenty of psychiatrists and psychologists and there are plenty of mental hospitals. There are a lot of facilities here. The issue comes in that we cannot, family members cannot force another family member to undergo treatment if they don't want to, as long as they're not dangerous to those around them or trying to hurt themselves. I don't 
like to air dirty laundry, so I'm not going to go any of the into any of the details, but uh, just suffice to say, I have some firsthand experience with trying to get a family member some mental health treatment. And the problem is you're trying to get someone who is not thinking clearly to do rational things. And you're having to rely on that person to do the rational things that they need to do to improve their mental health. And that simply does not work out very well. Now, in the middle part of this, of this century, or the 20th century, actually, the last century, in the 50s and the 60s and earlier, the laws were very different. You know, somebody could be taken to a mental hospital and kept indefinitely for very simple things. Uh, and that was really going too far because you had people being taken off and you just never see them again. They'd be kept there at these hospitals, and a lot of times these hospitals were not great places to be. But they did not have any right to leave. Um, they did not need a court order or anything like that. The doctors had total control over whether that person gets to leave or has to stay. And that's where you get the movie trope of the guys in white coats showing up and dragging people off to mental hospitals. It was from that time period. Now, the problem with that is a lot of these state-run mental institutions were underfunded. Uh, the Doctors that worked there, nobody really wanted to work at one of those hospitals, so you had the lowest performing doctors winding up in those jobs. Uh, treatment was far and away much worse than what we are now. We've learned a great deal in the last hundred years. Medicine has advanced in the hundred years. Our understanding of what causes these issues and how to correct them is improved. Treatment is much better than it would have been back then, but this is all exacerbated by you had these old hospitals that were run down, just basically a prison. They were just warehousing these people. They weren't really treating them. And then the book One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest came out in 1962. And then it was made into a movie in 1975. And people saw that movie and it's like, oh my God, this is what is happening to these people. It's a, This is horrible. We've got to do something. I'm sure everybody has heard, you know, well, Ronald Reagan did away with all the mental hospitals. Well, yeah, it's true. Ronald Reagan did finally shut all those places down. What you never hear is that Congress had defunded all of those hospitals years before Ronald Reagan became president. This was in the early 70s that they did this. And then there was actually supposed to be two parts of the plan. They were going to do away with these state-run prison-slash-mental hospitals and they were going to replace them with outpatient services. Guess what never happened? The second part of that plan was never put into any kind of action. There was never any funding. I am not a fan of government handling everything, but this is a situation that's something that the federal government probably could step in and do some good, not just throwing our taxpayer dollars down a black hole. They could actually improve things, not just for the patients, but for the families that have to deal with this stuff, too. And again, I'm not a big government guy, but there are things that the federal government could really take a hand in and do some do some improvements. Jeez, if I can talk. Make some improvements and do some good for the country as a whole. This is one of those situations. So, yes, Ronald Reagan did finally put an end to all these hospitals. They had been running on shoestring budgets by an act of Congress for about 10 years at that point. And they went from being hell holes into some place that you wouldn't put your worst enemy in that time. 
and they did get shut down, but they needed to get shut down. The problem is, is they shut it down without setting up anything for those people to go to. So they all just got put out on the street. And it's a problem with the way the human mind works. Everybody saw the movie. The movie was very, very popular. It was a big success. I think, I think it won some Oscars. And the book had been out for 10 years before, 12 years actually. Um, and I'm sure people read the book. A lot of people don't read. So it was really the movie. It's human nature to overcompensate for things. We do it all the time. 200 years ago, everybody had a farm, everybody had livestock they depended on to eat, and the wolves were killing all the animals. So what do we do? We damn near wipe wolves off the face of the planet. That is an overcorrection to a problem. Now, it is a problem that wolves were killing livestock because the people have to eat. Back then, you didn't go to the grocery store, you grew your food, and if you did a bad job, your family starved in the winter. It's kind of a motivating factor that we've lost in our modern life. But back then, you know, a little bit of a thinning of the wolf population so that people wouldn't starve to death. That's a good thing. Killing all the wolves, and imagine quotations and underlining the word all of the wolves. That's going a bit too far, but that's just the way we work. Doctors do the same thing. Doctors overcompensate. We always think, Doctors are going to look at things a little more level-headed, a little more logically than most people. But no, doctors are human. And of course, you have the old joke, what do you call the doc, the guy that graduates last from his class of medical school? Well, you call him doctor. So you don't always have super intelligent people making these decisions. You have people that you know were intelligent enough to scrape by in medical school, but you're not always dealing with the cream of the crop. Because you're going to have good and bad in any profession. But the doctors overcompensate too. If you need a example of that, just think of the opioid crisis. 20 years ago, the thinking was, you know, we have to treat pain as another vital sign. If they come in and they say they're in pain, we have to treat that just the way we would treat any other symptom. And they were writing prescriptions for Percocets to everybody that walked through the door. You know, five years ago, all of a sudden, oh, what, half the country strung out on pain pills. Well, let's just cut it off. That's an overcompensation. You went too far one way, you caused a problem. Now you're going way too far the other way. Um, I heard a doctor on the radio saying what my profession should have done instead of saying, well, you're a drug addict. I'm not writing you any more pills. What we should have said was, you know, we have created this problem. We gave you these drugs. We need to wean you off the drugs. You know, we need to get you into some treatment for the dependence that your body has for the substance. Instead, they just cut them off. And I'm sure a lot of people just white knuckled it, got through the withdrawal symptoms and they're living their lives. A lot of those people decided, you know, I can buy heroin off the street corner and now they're junkies. But that's what doctors do. That's what people do. We do it all the time. So we saw one flew over the cuckoo's nest. We all felt so horrible for Jack Nicholson and everybody that was in that movie. And we said, okay, unless somebody is harming other people or harming themselves, we cannot force them into treatment. They can live their life. They have their freedom. We're going to go hands off. And that's the way we're going to deal with this problem. And what has happened in recent years? Homelessness has exploded. Drug addiction and the homeless has exploded. Alcoholism, it's always blamed as why they're there. A lot of times it's a symptom as much as being homeless is. Mental illness 
drives most of the homelessness in this country. I listened to a doctor who is an addiction medicine specialist, and if anybody's curious, it's Dr. Drew Pinsky. Uh, It's a fantastic show. I recommend it. Uh, But he has worked for 30 years uh, with people with addiction problems, and he says most of the people that he has dealt or treated medically that are homeless and are addicts, almost to a patient, those people have family members who are willing and ready to make sure that those people go to treatment, uh, to get them to doctor's appointments, to make sure they have a roof over their head, and they are absolutely powerless to do these things that would help this family member. They have absolutely no rights to dictate to those people who are in an altered state, and I'm not referring to substances at this point. It's just when someone has mental illness, the way they see the world and the reality that they experience is completely different than what is actually going on. Oftentimes you'll hear people say, you know, as long as they're not hurting anyone, if that's the way they want to live their lives, who are we to tell them they shouldn't? You just need to leave them alone and let them live their lives. Well, letting them live that life, you're killing them. In the city of L.A., during the pandemic, more homeless people died from overdoses, malnutrition, exposure to the elements, then died from COVID. I think they averaged seven a day in the city of L.A. Seven people a day in the city of L.A. die on the streets because we won't let anyone help them. And you have to allow family members and medical professionals, in these instances, you really have to think more about the patient's well-being than the patient's rights. I said before, you cannot rely on a person in that state to do the right thing, to make the correct decisions. And again, it's just we went too far in the other direction. There's a happy medium. There's a place in the middle that works both for the patient's rights and for their health. I am not a medical professional. I'm not going to voice a lot of opinions on what that should be. But there should be, you know, when people come out of prison, there are halfway houses to sort of ease them back into society. We could do something like that with people with mental issues. You could have sort of an assistant living where they have a doctor there monitoring that they're taking their medication, that they're going to their therapy treatments. But it's not a prison. They're not just kept there. They can leave. Uh, But you just say, you know, this is your residence for this amount of time or however long it takes for the treatment to get you to where you need to be. This is referred to as wraparound services. It's basically just, you know, you're not going to a therapy appointment once every two weeks and then left to your own devices the rest of the time. This is, you know, a, a daily intervention into their disease. Because, again, you cannot rely on mentally compromised people to follow a treatment plan. And it may seem cruel to force somebody to do that against their will, but it's sort of like feeding a wild animal. You know, it it feels good to give that bear two sandwiches every day. It's not good for the bear. It feels good for you. You're hurting the bear. You're taking away its ability to forage and fend for itself. It's the same with raising children. It, It hurts to tell your children no when it's something they want. But you have to do that. You have to do that more than you tell them yes, actually. Uh, We've all seen what happens when parents coddle their kids. They're screaming and yelling in the mall because they want to do something and the parents don't want to, and they're throwing a fit 
because they've never heard the word no. It's the exact same thing. Tough love does not get thrown out very often anymore, but tough love works. I'm not saying we have to be cruel to mentally impaired people, but you're being cruel by not doing anything for them at the same time. This is not 1962. Medical treatments for mental diseases have advanced way, way beyond anything that they could have imagined when One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest came out. We are a long way from nurse ratchet and bars on the windows. Our thinking hasn't advanced. Uh, You know, a lot of people like to think that we are just leaps and bounds over the previous generation and the things we understand and the way we look at the world. But we are letting people who could have a fairly normal life, they may not come back 100%, a lot of them would be able to, but we're letting people who could have a normal life for the most part die in the streets. And we're forcing the families of those people to just stand helplessly by and watch it happen. Because everybody read a book written 59 years ago that got turned into a movie 46 years ago. That is how dumb we still are. And we have got to break out of that thinking. All right, guys, that is about all I've got for you today. Um, I appreciate you sitting through the show once again. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, If you did enjoy it, please leave me a like, subscribe, and if you want to share this with a friend, that would be fantastic. If you want to leave me a comment, you can do so at the Fresh Frozen Southerner Facebook page or go to freshfrozensouthern at gmail.com. All right, guys, enjoy the rest of your weekend. I'm sorry, enjoy the rest of your week. I will talk to you again on Friday. Again, I hope you enjoyed the show, and thank you for sitting with me. I'll talk to you soon.